0: As you guys are taking your seats, you can take out your Bibles and open them to that passage Nathan just read. This week we are finishing the book of Malachi. So we're looking at Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 4 6. Um, If you didn't get a chance to listen, we'll preach last week on um, the passage just prior to this. And I would really recommend listening to it. Um, I've already had some of you guys ask. If Will was preaching today, um, because I guess you wanted to hear him more than you wanted to hear me, so, <laughs> but today we're looking at Malachi 3, we're finishing the book, and I wanted to, um, those of you who are in Will and Kelly's gospel community, Will issue a challenge to you guys to study the passage every day, and uh, try to get as much out of it, be praying for me. So what I thought we could do this morning is, for those of you who are a part of the Finn Gospel community, if you could come up and share what you've learned. Aaron, want to come first? Sure. Okay. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I would encourage you, this was a great challenge, and I love, um, I love what, what, what Will offered to his group, and I would encourage you guys to do something like this. Um, print, study the Bible deeply. So pick a passage of Scripture, maybe during a week, a couple weeks, uh, put it out on a page like this and just start marking it up. Underline uh, repetition, what connections serve where. Um, if you have a, many of you guys who have a, a Bible or a study Bible, look up the references that are associated with that. It's amazing how much you can get out of a passage when you really put the time into it and when you start digging into it. So I, I joke with the, those who are in our gospel community that as Christians, we should be soaking, snorkeling, and scuba so we should be soaking in the word we should be taking small pieces and meditating on it uh, l- letting ourselves get pruny in the word uh, we should be snorkeling, swimming we should be reading through maybe with, we have a bible plan that you've been reading through you're reading through portions of scripture but then you should also be scuba go down deep, dig into the passage um, take little portions, get a commentary read through a book um, so thank you Will for that and I just wanted to, to briefly mention on that uh, yeah, but today, like I said, we're finishing the, the end of, the, of Malachi. This is the finale. And not only of the book, but of the whole Old Testament. So this is, big, this is a big deal that we're doing tonight, this morning. I didn't see well last night, so you guys will have to bear with me this morning. Let's just jump right in, shall we? That introduction really was lame, so I'll just start it. <laughs> Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So if you've been journeying with us through the book of Malachi, you know that throughout the book, throughout Malachi's prophecy, Malachi has been offering challenges, rebukes, corrections. The people have been asking things, how, where is the God of justice? How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? And God has been responding. And God has, specifically the last couple chapters, has been addressing kind of these cynics, these attackers, these challengers. But in verse 16, we see that there's a group of people who actually respond, it seems like. A group of people who are actually listening. And it says they those who feared the Lord. Now, this phrase feared the Lord, it means they revered the Lord. They stood in great awe and wonder at God. It, fear of the Lord speaks to the, this covenant loyalty to God. It it gets to the fact of, of genuine worship, really fearing. The Lord and and Malachi is showing the contrast right at the gate in verse 16 with those previously, those who find fault in God, those who are foes of God. He's contrasting them with now, these who fear the Lord, and they speak together. Before we jump too much into the passage, I just I thought we could think about this morning this concept of, of fearing the Lord. What do you fear most? what in your life it was taken away would devastate you? Do you fear God? Now, sometimes I think it's a temptation for us when we read through uh, the Old Testament, especially some of these minor prophets who talk a lot about judgment and punishment and fear, that that was kind of just like an Old Testament idea. That that God is a little different than Jesus. That, you know, we're not supposed to fear God like those Israelites were. But when you read through the book of Acts and you read the New Testament letters, this idea of fearing the Lord was, was still very prominent. Acts 9:31. Luke is recording and describing the early church. It says so the church throughout all Judea and Gal- Gal- Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. How about 1 Peter 2:17? Peter says, "Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God." So, should fearing the Lord be something that we do as Christians after Jesus? Of course, we can't write this off that oh, that was something that was not, not really applicable to us, or that was kind of for the, the angry God in the Old Testament. And we see here that those who fear the Lord, when they speak with one another, God pays attention to them. Isn't that interesting? He listens and pays attention. Again, I think Malachi is showing the contrast here. What did how did God respond to the cynics? Those who were challenging him, those who were attacking him. God tells the people, Your words are hard against me. And yet for these, those who fear the Lord, God pays attention. He hears them. I love this verse because it reminds me of how much God cares and loves his people. That God listens to his people. I believe Malachi is also showing, wanting to show the difference of the God of Israel versus the pagan gods of the other nations, the gods who couldn't pay attention, who couldn't listen, who couldn't do anything. The God of Israel, he responds, and he does something. And we see this this similarity, this same idea, in possibly one of the greatest books in the Bible, the book of Daniel. Daniel 10, verse 12. It says, Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. I also think here that Malachi is getting at responding to the people's earlier question, where is the God of justice? It's right there. He's listening to his people. He's listening to the people who are truly his, the people who fear him. And for these group of people who fear God, who God is listening to, they get together and it says, they write, they have a book of remembrance that was written. Now this book of remembrance would have been a scroll. It would have been a document that would have served as a record in which these people who were fearing the Lord came together and they literally just, they would write their names. This core, this faithful group of people wrote a book of remembrance. It was a way of affirming the covenant. We're committing to God, and we're committing together in the presence of God. Similarly to how today at, at the Mountain Church, specifically, we have a membership covenant. It's where we kind of get this idea of coveting, covenanting together, showing commitment to one another, making a formal agreement, signing a document. These are my people. I'm making this commitment under God to be with these people, to fear God together. Malachi says, the people that esteemed his name. Esteem means to think highly of, to regard highly, to think much of. One commentator said that the idea of of God's keeping record appears occasionally in the Old Testament. We see this in Exodus 32, Psalm 69, Daniel 12. The New Testament mentions it many times, especially in Revelation. But perhaps the most beautiful expression of this idea is in Isaiah 49, 16. See, I have graven you on the palm of my hands. This idea, book of remembrance, together we will fear God, we will esteem his name. God says in verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This remnant, this precious remnant, is God's precious treasure, for them serving God has not been in vain. God oftentimes referred to his people as a treasured possession. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So God, God's word is, is ringing out true here. The passage that Will preached on last week, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hasn't changed. stays the same. If you keep my commandment, you obey my commandment, you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. So for those who have, those who are responding, those who are remnant, those who fear the Lord, those who have kept the covenant, God says, you're gonna be my treasured possession. You will be mine. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And he says a very similar thing later in Deuteronomy 14, 2. So for these people, this core remnant, he will make them his treasured possession and God says that he's going to spare them from this coming wrath. God says in verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God is pressing in to the people's complaints, rebukes, challenge at God. God, the wicked prosper. God, God, you are blessing the wicked they they're testing you and they're escaping. Remember these are the challenges that the people are bringing forth to God. And God is saying there's going to be a distinction. You will not test me and escape. The righteous will be separated from the wicked. No one is going to put me to the test and escape. I am the God of justice. Justice will happen. And he gets a little graphic in starting in chapter 4, doesn't he? God is telling the people what is going to happen to those who are wicked, those who are not righteous, those who are ignorant, those who are belittling him, challenging him, complaining against him. It says in verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Now, this day that Malachi is referring to is this day is the day of judgment. This great day of the Lord is the day of judgment. It's what Isaiah 13, 6 says. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Malachi is very direct with his people, isn't he? He's very clear. He paints like graphic images, the Lord is coming, and He will judge everyone. Not the most popular uh, Twitter post, catchy Facebook thing, or you know, Christian girl Instagram. You're taking a little picture. The Lord's going to come and judge everyone. And these right, these aren't the most popular teachings, but this is the reality. The Lord of hosts will come to judge everyone. All people. And what God is saying here is that the wicked will perish. They they won't escape. If you think the wicked will escape, you're wrong. This is what God is saying. They is coming burning like an oven. The little word for oven is furnace. It's an enclosed chamber of intense heat. It would be an incinerator of destruction and the arrogant those who are proud or haughty those who are taunting god those who challenge god and seemingly escape will not escape and god says for all the arrogant and evil doers will really be stubble now when i first read that i don't know where your mind goes but i think about facial hair right maybe i I'm, okay that's what i thought stubble <laughs> The arrogant will be stubble. They will be what's left after you shave. Still kind of, who wants that, right? Who really likes stubble? But actually this, the, this word stubble here is, is referring to chaff. The worthless material on a, on, on a husk, on grain stalk that surrounds the seed of the plant. Stuff that is literally worthless. God says, I'm going to set them ablaze. And then he uses this imagery of burning a tree neither root nor branch. The the mention of these roots and the termination of the roots indicates a complete end of growth. I think it gets to a complete end of any flourishing. All the wicked without exception will be consumed by this fire. But again, you see the contrast of what Malachi is doing in verse two. But for you, who fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Another difference. Now this image of, of sun of righteousness rising is also seen in Isaiah 60. It gets to the idea that God will bring restoration to his people. God will heal his people. God will vindicate his people. This imagery of comparing the sun rising is the idea of expelling darkness, bringing healing, bringing Light. And that, the words there, the phrase, healing in its wings, the, the wings there was, is a phrase that could refer to the sun's rays. It's a way of describing the rays of the sun, and these rays, these wings, would bring about healing, light to everything that it touches. Uh, as I was reading on this passage this week, one commentator said, the outstretched wings of a bird and the extended rays of the sun were symbols of divine protection and deliverance in the biblical world. I just love that that imagery. Isn't it beautiful? Sun rising, healing in its wings, healing in its rays. But after after this sentence, the end of verse two probably comes my favorite sentence, my favorite phrase in the in the passage, maybe my favorite phrase in the book. So after you you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out like Leaping like calves from the stall. How many of you have seen calves leap from a stall? I didn't know this was a thing, so of course, what do I do? Open YouTube, type in cows or calves leaping, and it's crazy. There's videos. There's this one video. Will has probably found the best one of this calf leaping, but there was one video that I was watching. It was I think it was by BBC and it was describing cows who were going to be slaughtered. It was a little, a little trying to get at your emotions. But anyways, they released these cows into the pasture from a stall, and they just go about like jumping around. Now, I've never seen cows do this. I'm not very familiar with farm animals or with cattle. But it was such a sweet illustration to me. These cows who've been confined to a stall, they're getting released into the pasture, and they're just jumping around. And the word that they using there is could mean frolic. Isn't that a great word? Frolic, boisterous, or it'd be hard to imagine kind of a more vivid image of excitement. You're seeing like a, a cow or a calf, a large animal jump around. Really, go, go, like go home today, YouTube, cows jumping. Or text Will or email Will, he's got a great video that he could show you and send you. This jumping around, this leaping around, I think demonstrates the joy that comes with the renewal, the salvation, the restoration of God. The righteous will frolic when they have been released from the stall, when they have been healed. They will frisk in their deliverance, in their salvation, in their freedom. And they will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. They will be vindicated on the day when I act. Verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses. Verses four through six is kind of the conclusion of the, the book of Malachi. And it starts with remember the law. And one of the things I, I loved about the passage last week, and I thought Will did a, such a good job about communicating it clearly, was that when we forget God's word, when we neglect to do the things that God has commanded us in God's word and we expect blessing, we expect different things to happen, it's ludicrous. God will not change. God does not change. God's promises are true, once and always. The people had forgotten the law, so Malachi instructs them at the end, remember the law. Now this idea of remembering, it applies more than just recalling. It gets to the idea of applying. Doing the words and deeds of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. This is another word for Mount Sinai for all of Israel. And I think, in a sense, you could argue that this kind of sentence closes the book nicely. Malachi begins with an illustration from Genesis, Jacob and Esau. He spent most of the first half of the book reminding the priests and the people to keep the Mosaic Law. To turn back. And now he closes the book. Give them another reminder to continue your obligation. Remember the law. But then he issues a promise and a warning at the same time in verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree Of utter destruction. Here, God is promising that He's going to send His prophet to prepare the way before this great and awesome day of the Lord. This role of the prophet, like the prophets before Him, would be to prepare the hearts of the people. Do what Malachi has been trying to do convict the people, call them back to God, call them to repentance. And this would be the mission of this prophet to bring the people to repentance, to call them to repentance. And it's interesting, I was reading through this. Scholars and commentators kind of agree that when Malachi talks about Moses and Elijah, it's kind of talking about the fulfillment of the prophets and the law. So you literally have in the, in the end of the Old Testament a reference to the fulfillment of both of these things. You have a promise of what's to come. But you have a, a warning that an impending destruction and judgment will come. But deliverance and restoration remains open for the righteous. See that Malachi begins the book with an announcement of God's love, but he ends with a warning, a promise. It's a kind of a dual threat or curse, warning versus a, a word of hope. And this is how our Old Testament closes. That's it. Turn the next page and you got the New Testament. It's fitting that this is how the book ends, right? The, the summation of the, the prophets and the law. And remembering the word. Remember the law. Now, since we are after the time of Christ, after the time of the New Testament, how do we read this passage in light of the New Testament? That's one of my goals and hopes of every sermon is that we look at a passage and we read it, we apply it in light of the gospel, right? This should be our hope as we're studying the scriptures. How does this point to Jesus? What promises does this make about Jesus? What hope does this give us for Jesus? Is this about Jesus? If you're not reading your scriptures this way, this is how we need to be reading the scriptures. Seeing Christ, proclaiming Christ, reading Christ in all of scripture. So what does this teach us about Christ? what does this prepare us for, Christ? Well, again, you flip your Bible, just a couple pages, and you see a guy is introduced, a guy named John the Baptist who preaches repentance. Turn, or the time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. This John the Baptist is what the New Testament refers to as this Elijah, this Elijah figure who would prepare the way before Christ. Listen to what he says in Matthew and how it describes John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. It says, When he, referring to John the Baptist, saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious people, coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that has not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What does that sound like? Does that sound like the passage we just read? He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, Verse 12, his winnowing fork is at hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat to the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See the correlation there? And sometimes I think we forget, John the Baptist here is talking about Jesus. I don't know about you, but growing up in church or kind of being in our culture, you see... Images of Christ, whether it's on uh, the Simpsons, Family Guy. What's the other one that really, dist- uh, South Park, how they describe Jesus, our culture describes Jesus. He oftentimes is described as this wimp, passive, soft, little skinny white guy. He's not going to ask you to change. Not really that powerful. Just about love and let's just hug together, guys, Right? Wrong. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone. This person that is carrying the winnowing fork that is going to burn the chaff, is talking about Jesus. And one of the first things that I must mention from this passage in light, of, in light of this, in light of Christ coming, in light of what this passage talks about in Malachi, is that Jesus Christ will judge all men in righteousness. This doesn't change from Malachi it becomes more clear on who that figure is it's Christ Jesus talks about hell punishment judgment a lot and because i love you because i want to serve you well if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ you do not believe in Christ there is you're in danger If you're here this morning and you don't want to worship or revere God, you're in a dangerous place and judgment and wrath is coming unless you are covered in Christ. Now, right now, you might think, all right, Daniel, lighten up. We've heard about wrath enough. That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? Daniel, this is not what is going to make people want to come to the mountain church. You want this church to grow? Don't talk about wrath. That's going to make people feel uncomfortable. Even now I can kind of see in some of your faces. This is making you a little uncomfortable. Talking about wrath. Sounds a little bit like hellfire and brimstone. A little too harsh. Do we realize that wrath is coming? I don't talk about wrath and judgment because I want to make you feel bad. Because I'm an angry person and I like talking about God's anger. I talk about wrath because that's what the Bible talks about. I talk about wrath because the more that we understand the wrath that we were saved from, the more that we will love God, the more that we will cherish the gospel. Do we study God's wrath? This is a search that we type into Bible verses about wrath. We cannot think that there are no consequences to our actions. We cannot think that there are no punishments to be had based upon sin, rebellion, preference to things other than God. We cannot think that those in our life that do not know Christ are okay, they are in danger. Do we love people enough to tell them that? I think a lot of times it's just easier for us to not think about it, isn't it? You have a friend that doesn't know Christ. You have a family member that doesn't know Christ. easier just to not even think about it. You become callous to it. Sooner or later, you stop even thinking about it. Then you start becoming entitled with, well, I didn't really deserve wrath. Do we have a love and a compassion for those around us who don't know Christ that we will warn them about the wrath that is to come? Separation from God, what that means, what that looks like. The good news is that there is hope, right? We don't just hit him with the left hook and then let him sit in pain. Hopefully we don't do that. That's a poor evangelism strategy. In fact, though, I... Sometimes I think we can get a little scared about talking about hell and wrath and judgment. We don't want to really include that as we share the gospel. But it's incredible when you talk with people who have heard the gospel, how a lot of times God uses that, maybe a poor explanation of it or a harsh explanation, to save someone. I was talking with a guy at a church, uh, the church I I served at before planting the mountain church at the Hallows, who said, Yeah, I got saved because a friend of mine said, You know, if you keep living like this, you're going to go to hell. That's how we got saved. Now, I'm not saying those who are in your life say, well, you're going to go to hell. But are we afraid to talk about what's to come with people in our life? God can use anything like that. Do we want to shy away from that? If you're like me and you read this passage, you think, okay, how how will God take up his treasured possession? How will he spare his people if they are wicked and sinful? Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, how can God be a God of justice and a God of love at the same time? How can people get punished for what they deserve to be punished for and yet he's still loving? And I think that there's kind of two ways that a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, a lot of theologies can, can gravitate towards. In Seattle, in this area, it's a lot towards God's love, right? We don't talk about wrath. We don't talk about judgment. We don't talk about anything that seems intolerant. Let's just talk about God's love. And the way that we stay centered and rooted in God, the way that we do not misalign or misrepresent who God is or belittle who he is or elevate one portion of his character above the other, is by looking at the cross, amen? Because in the cross, we see that God's justice is upheld and his love is upheld. How? The wicked deserve to be punished, correct? Sin must be punished. God's wrath burns against sin. And the good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God moved to do something about this. Everyone will not be destroyed in the fire. There is hope. Not everyone is chaff. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that we couldn't live. He lived a perfect life. A life of perfect, uh, you could say, fearing God, revering God, worshiping God. He lived a life of perfect obedience. God sent this son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus suffered and died. But he did so in our place. On the cross, the wrath of God that should be poured out on all sinners, on the world, was poured out in Christ so that if anyone would trust in him, in that, trust in the work and person of Jesus, they won't experience the wrath of God. Since the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, they're covered. That's what the Bible talks about, covered in the blood of Christ. The the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And when we look through this passage, we see the the beauty of the gospel. You you start to see it as you read through this passage in Malachi. Hope to share some of the things that I saw when I read this. And hopefully that as we become more uh, in tune with seeing Christ and reading Christ through scripture, we'll pick up on these things. you see in verse 17, it says, "Um, I will spare my people as a man spares his son who served him. What scandalous about the gospel is that God makes us sons and daughters because he didn't spare his own son. He gave his son. Isn't that cool? I just love that. What about um, the other part of verse 17? In the day when I take up my treasured possession, God makes people who are, Ugly, wicked, evil, his treasured possession because he gave up his. He gave his only son, Jesus Christ, so that now we become his treasured possession if we trust in him. What about this day that's burning like an oven? How, we, how do we escape that? Christ went into the oven for us. Christ was burned so that we are not burned. Are you guys seeing the gospel in this? Christ took our punishment. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. Know that if you do not trust in this, I would love to talk with you after our gathering. I'd love to talk with you. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? But what if you do trust in Christ? Christ? What if you do place your trust and your hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ? You have been spared. You are His Church's possession. The wrath of God is not coming for you. How do we read this passage in light of that? What are some principles and points we can glean from the end of Malachi? I think I have about five as we close on on things that we can take out of this passage and, and apply today in our life right now, if we are Christians. Number one, the people of God should be people of prayer. Why? It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Friends, do we realize that if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, that God hears our prayers? Do we realize that? Does that affect the way that you pray? It should. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, if then you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What do you ask of God? Do you believe that he is a good father? This will change the way that you pray. Do you believe that you are a treasured possession? That you are worthy and valuable, that God loves you? This will affect the way that you pray. This will affect the way that you talk to God, the things that you ask of God. Number two, people of God should be people of the word. It's interesting as you read through this passage, what is the one direct explicit command in the whole passage? The one command. There's others that God promises that he was gonna do, but what is the one thing that God tells his people? Remember Remember the law. Sometimes I think as, as Christians or I know in my life too, the temptation can be that we, we don't really need the word. And we might not vocalize this, but it expresses itself, it bears fruit in our life as we don't read it. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but a big reason oftentimes that I don't read my word is I don't think I need to. Because if I did... I would read it, right? A good friend of mine uses this illustration in talking to Christians about reading the word as eating, right? Like when you wake up, what's one of the first things that you should do? Eat breakfast. If you don't eat breakfast, hopefully you eat lunch. But you know, if I don't eat, I'm not going to be nourished. I'm not going to function right. I'm going to be grumpy. I don't eat long enough. I'm going to starve. Do we have the same conviction, the same grip about the word? I worry that there there are many Christians, or might be even some of us in this room, who we are spiritually starving and we don't even realize it. You think, oh, I can go a day, a couple days, a week, not reading God's word, and I don't even feel a thing. Would God break your heart of your callousness? Would God break our hearts if we, if we have that mentality? Do we have that same conviction about the word? I know if I don't brush my teeth, my teeth are gonna rot. Do we have that same conviction about the word? If I don't read this, my soul is gonna shrivel My joy in Christ is going to be lacking. My affections for God are going to be low. My desire to worship him, to obey him, to depend on him is going to be low. I talk a lot about this because I think it's so important. I thought I could just read through some scriptures this morning that we could have God's word speak over us about what it says about itself. Is that okay? Okay. Joshua 1:8: "The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it." Sometimes I think we miss how clear that God's word is on this, right? Meditate on it so that you can do it. Deuteronomy thirty sixteen. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You're struggling with purity? Struggling with Sin? How do you stay pure? You know, I think sometimes we think we can kind of graduate from those Sunday school answers, from those answers that we tell our kids, you know, pray and read your Bible. It seems so simple that we can somehow move on from that. You got to move deeper into it, right? Psalm 119.11, 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm one nineteen ninety seven, How, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but I every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, do we have a conviction here this morning that being in the word is the most important thing that we do in our day? I'm getting a lot of really blank stares. I need prayer on this, guys. I'm praying for our church about this. John 17:17, 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Probably one of my favorite ones out of the whole batch, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. See that? We're supposed to dwell in us so that we can teach one another, so that we can correct one another. The word of God can't be some sort of accessory. Can't be some little thing that we segment off into our life. I'll read five minutes in the morning, I'm good. Number three, the people of God are to be patient people. We get this from, um, I think, the whole passage, but more specifically in in chapter 4, verse 1. When God says, the day is coming, Uh, excuse me. Oh, yeah, verse 2, but also uh, chapter 3, verse 17. God says, they shall be mine in the day when I take up my treasured possession. Once more you shall see in the day. What's interesting about this is that God doesn't really give a time frame. I think that was one of the problems that the Israelites were experiencing beforehand. They had these expectations that, well, we rebuilt the temple, or we restored our end of the bargain. Now, God, come on. Come, let's let's make this thing great again. Let's restore Israel to greatness. And it didn't happen in their time frame. And even when God promises that judgment's gonna come, God promises that I'm gonna act, he doesn't say in this time frame. Three months, 36 hours, I'm coming. You ever hear that some of those crazy people say, you know, this is when Jesus is coming, 20, whatever, this time, this place, just run away from them. People are going to be marked by patience, not impatience. Would you car- characterize yourself as a patient person? Nope. Should Christians be patient people? Why? Hopefully we are growing in our patience, aren't we? Like as we mature in Christ, our patience should be growing because hopefully as we are growing in Christ, we are understanding the gospel more deeply we are realizing how patient God has been with us. The more we experience his grace, we experience his forgiveness, we realize how patient he has been with us. We look back over the course of our years and we realize how immature we have been. We should be growing in patience. I believe that those who profess belief in the Christian gospel should be some of the most patient people you've ever met. Are you a patient person? Are you patient with people as long as they're patient with you? Are you patient with impatient people? I think this is a big way that we can stand out in our culture today. Because I don't know, I might be off on this, but I don't know, I don't think that our culture really prioritizes patience and waiting. Like there's no app called Slowgram. <laughs> Give it a couple days, your picture will go online, <laughs> right? <laughs> we have Instagram, where our photos are instantaneously put on the line, online. We have, we don't want to wait for our water to get hot, we have InstaHots. We don't want to wait for those long lines at the grocery store, so we have express lines. Our quick list, our self checkout, yes. What is one of the things that, that makes us angry? Maybe it makes us impatient. That as a culture, I don't think we value. We're trying to get rid of. Makes us, yes, thank you, Christian. Insta angry. Traffic. Who loves traffic? Here's what you don't see people doing at the grocery store. Ooh, that line looks really long. I'm going to get in it. As a culture, we don't value waiting. I don't think we value patience. Are we characterized by patience? Do we wake up in the morning with a a calmness, a peace about us as we're in the Word? Or do we wake up stressed? I got to go. I got to do all these things. I got to move. I've got my agenda planned out. I'm not saying don't have a plan but are we characterized by patience, by peace? I'm looking forward to this one, to talking about it. Number four, the people of God should be joyful people. Do you leap like a calf? <laughs> it's good that we have a, um, a, a great familiarity with one another, that we can kind of talk about these things jokingly and laughingly, but we should be serious about joy. The good news about the gospel, guys, is that we don't have to wait to flourish. We don't have to wait to jump like calves out of a stall. God promises that now. God is with us now. And in fact, what I've been finding more and more is that God commands joy. It's not optional. I hope that we don't have this kind of religious, sacral mentality that joy is optional. It's really about duty. As long as I'm doing the right things, My affections don't have to be involved. As long as I'm singing the words, I don't really have to mean it in my heart. I read an article this week titled Joy is Not Optional by a guy named David Mathis. He says, one of the reasons the Bible is so relentless in insisting on our joy is because of the goodness of God. The imperative to joy in us is based on the indicative of good in him. Deuteronomy 26.11, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord has given to you. Joy in the heart of the creature corresponds to goodness in the heart of the creator. Joy is the fitting response of the receiver to goodness of the giver. And I would argue that it's a sin to not find joy in what is infinitely enjoyable. Psalm 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, O righteous! O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 102, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Are you righteous? Do we rejoice? Come and, oh, excuse me, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We're going to be singing a song here at the, the tail end, or the, one of the last three songs that we sing today is a song called With Everything. It's a song that, towards the end, we, we build, we get really loud, and we literally are shouting woes together. It's like a chant. Now, I hope that as we respond to the word this morning, that we would, as the Psalm 32.11 says, shout for joy. I don't. I, I hope sometimes we don't feel we don't feel awkward with this song, or we just. Well, I'm not going to really say that part. It's really high, but we should be shouting. Like if it wasn't a command, I would say it's optional. I would say you know if you feel like shouting this morning, shout. But I, it's not. Shout for joy. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, your brothers rejoice. Philippians three one. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. How about this one? Think about this one this week. Chew on it. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. You think it's optional? You think it's something we stop doing? A lot of times I think what happens is we do what has been called by a guy named Randy Alcorn. We send away our joy. We sin away our happiness. What do you find your joy in? Would you characterize your, your walk with Christ right now as a leaping calf? Are you flourishing? <laughs> Finally, number five. The people of God should have an urgency in mission. The people of God should have an urgency and mission. Like we talked about earlier, we have to realize and understand that there is no gray with God. There are foes and there are followers. You know how many people you run across in your life that say, well, I believe in God, but I don't really read my Bible. I don't really go to church. I really like to do whatever I like to do. I normally ask, like, well, what God are you, do you believe in? The God of the Bible? Sounds more like you've created your own God that serves you, that you crafted to fit your needs. Do we have a realistic, a realistic mentality and a humility about coming judgment? Does this create an urgency in us? I love how Malachi describes that the sun of righteousness will rise and there will be this great light that expels the darkness. I love how that correlates to how Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. But what's even more amazing to me is what Jesus calls his people, his disciples. He not only says, I'm the light, but he says in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Just let that sink in this morning. How does God intend for people to come to know him? I think he wants to use you. I think he wants to use you being the light, reaching out, touching others, being his representative, being a person of joy and peace and patience. As a church, as a Christian this morning, do you demonstrate this joy, this abundant life in Christ so that you are distinct, so that you stand out? Do you have an urgency that you want to like you want to put yourself in situations that you can talk about Jesus. Or is it kind of an afterthought? Well, I'll, I'll do enough missions so that Daniel or Nathan or Will, they'll think that we're doing enough that we need to be doing with mission. Or is this a focal point in, that we want to we want to be about? Getting the gospel out. We want to be about having the gospel magnified and multiplied in our areas of life, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our city? Do we desire that? Hope and fear that we do not become callous to this. I pray that we would fight against this. I pray that you guys would hold me accountable, that you would speak into my life where I, my joy has been robbed. I'm sending my joy away. I'm incredibly thankful for the, the people that God has placed in my life that do this on a regular basis. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son to us who says that he is the light of the world. That whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father, we thank you for saving us for sending your son, Jesus, to shine in the darkness. Thank you for sending your son to not only die, but to rise again. That you reigned victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Father, I felt like this morning that I was, I was rambling. I wasn't really being clear. But Father, I, I trust that your word, as we study your word, as we cling to your word that we would know you more Father I pray that you use something I said today or or will say at this church to lighten a, a spark in our heart Father I pray that you will somehow use the words of this church to change lives not because it's our words because we are sharing your words because we are a people that is about the gospel. Father, I thank you for this book, Malachi, that we have studied, that oftentimes it's harsh, that is very direct, that is strong. But Father, I, th- I thank you for the way that it has revealed your heart. You care about your people to send prophets to them, to call them to repentance. Father, I pray now that that we would be a people who love one another enough to call out sin in, our, in each other's life. Father, I pray that you would develop an intimacy and a trust within us, that we would do that with one another. That as we do this, it would lead to, to joy and, and glorifying you. Father, I pray that you would warm our hearts to you. As we speak about your word, as we speak about being a joyful people, a patient people, Father, I know that there are those here this morning who do not want that. They believe that they have the joy, they have the happiness in themselves or in something that they have not yet attained. They are believing in functional saviors that will somehow, they think, bring them happiness. This might be a new career that raise Father, would you show yourself to us to be who you really are, the treasure of all life, the one that we deserve all praise, the one that it doesn't mean anything to lay everything down because you are so much better. You are more comfortable. You are more satisfying. You are more pleasurable. You bring more joy. Give us the faith to believe that. Father, give me the faith to believe that. That these words that I say are not just empty Phrases or sayings. As we sing these songs, they're not empty. We really believe them. Father, open our eyes to see the things that make your heart cry. Father, help us to lay down our pride. Help us to be the church that you desire. I pray now, Father, it would be a time of repentance and a time of great singing as you release us from sin, as we return from sin, as we trust more deeply in you. Father, may you be glorified now as we sing to you. In your son's name I pray, amen.